All right, if you have your Bibles, let's look once again at Acts chapter number one. I'm going to read two of the verses that we read a few moments ago. So look with me now at verse number 10, which says, And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Beloved, this morning I'd like to bring you a message that I've entitled, This Same Jesus. That phrase, of course, comes from verse number 11, and I find that just to be a tremendously enchanting phrase. It, it fits so well with my thoughts this week as I've been thinking about the fact that, you know, Easter is over and uh, all of the excitement that uh, is a part of Easter, it seems like, oh, almost it leaves a vacuum in its wake. We get so pumped up, we get so excited, and rightly so, and our hearts just are enraptured and thrilled by the events of Easter and the, some of the wonderful, beautiful music that thrills our soul and the, the, the verses from the Bible that thrills our, thrill our souls, and then, boom, Easter's over, and we kind of think to ourselves, hmm, almost feel like there's a little bit of a void to be filled. Well, if you feel that way, I want you to think a little bit, about, little bit about these disciples. I mean, here's this story in Acts chapter 1. Uh, they've just, in some ways, gotten Jesus back. And yes, he had a 40-day post-resurrection ministry in which he appeared to them, as we read about in these verses, and taught them about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But boy, here comes this last scene, and all of a sudden, Jesus, whom they had just gotten back, is gone again. And God, anticipating, I think, the way human nature is and the way they were likely to have felt just sort of discouraged and maybe even despairing that Jesus was gone from them again, the Bible tells us he sent two men, angels, of course, to bring one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible to them concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, if you think about the second coming of Christ, there are sort of two directions you can go with this. There are sort of two messages that are involved in it. One, of course, is to believers, and we look for the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that, that is a message of comfort. That is a message in which we think of the opportunity, as we're told in this verse, that we'll have the opportunity to see our beloved Savior, this same Jesus, but, of course, it also has another prong to it because there will be those who do not know him and will stand before him in judgment. And it's interesting that co coinciding with that are two occurrences in the book of Acts of this little phrase, this same Jesus. The one that we have before us in chapter 1, verse 11, and then in a few moments, we'll be looking at the one in chapter 2 and verse 36. And each of them contains a little different message to a little different audience and uh, with a different emphasis altogether. So first of all, let's consider Acts chapter 1, verse 11, this same Jesus as it portrays the beloved Savior. Of course, as I've said, the audience here is the disciples, and the message is one of comfort. As I said to, that, to you before, think about this for just a moment. Uh, Jesus, who has so recently been restored to them, now he's gone again, and this time with some degree of finality, because this time he actually ascends up into heaven, and they see him no more. And wait, they do not know for how long Jesus is going to be gone, simply that he's told them he's coming back. 
they do know this. They do know that in his absence, he has left them with an undaunting task. The great commission that's given again in verse 8, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus is gone. There's a daunting task before them, albeit with the promise of the soon-to-come Holy Spirit. And the, the words that are used in verses 9 through 11 just paint a, an amazing picture to us of what this must have been like for these men as they saw Jesus for the last time and how they must have felt about it. They're all present tenses, so if you look with me at verse number 9, first of all, it says here, and while they beheld. So again, with the present tense, the idea is emphasis on the continuing nature of the action. Whenever you find this in the original language, it generally has the emphasis on the continuing nature of the action. So the, the idea is, is while they were beholding, while they were watching as he ascended up, and then the next verse says that while they were looking steadfastly towards heaven, and again, once again, it's the present tense. So now, now the, the word picture is a little bit different. The word in the original is a little bit different. Translated for us here, while they were looking steadfastly, is, is actually has in it the root, uh, the root uh, word has in it the idea of to strain or tension. So it's sort of like, and while they were straining to see him, you can almost picture these these men, as they kind of stretched their necks to catch the last, last glimpse they could of Jesus as the clouds enveloped him. And then we come to verse number 11, which uses an intensive of that first word that we saw in verse 9. When the angels appear, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing? It's translated here, gazing. And so they just, they're awestruck. And can you imagine the emotions that they must have felt as they strained to see Jesus? Jesus, whom they had just gotten back, and now Jesus, who was gone, and they, they just kept looking and kept looking and kept looking, but he was gone. You know, I'm reminded of a story that is told concerning the British preacher, F.B. Meyer, that one day he was on a train, and as he got on the train, there was a rather miserable-looking woman who apparently recognized him and came up to him, and she ventured to tell him her story. And her story was basically that for years she had spent her days caring for uh, her daughter. Her daughter was crippled, and she had such great joy, nevertheless, in her daughter. She'd get up in the morning, and she'd make tea for her, and then she'd leave for work, and she'd look forward to the evening when she would come home and see her daughter again. But then the daughter passed away, and it left the mother grieving and miserable. And, and she told Meyer, she said, home just didn't seem like home anymore. I'm sure many of us have been in that situation and can identify with that. Well, Meyer gave her some really interesting counsel. He said this, when you get home and put the key in the door, Say aloud, Jesus, I know you are here, and be ready to greet him directly when you open the door, and as you light the fire, tell him what has happened during the day. If anybody has been kind, tell him. If anybody has been unkind, tell him. Tell him just as you would have told your daughter, and as you stretch out your hand in the darkness at night as you go to bed, say to him, Jesus, I know you are there. 
Well, days and weeks passed, and some months later, Myers happened to be in the same uh, area again, in the same village, and saw the woman, and it was like he hardly recognized her. She was totally different. And she came up to him, and her face just seemed to radiate joy, and she said to him, I did as you told me. And she said, it has made all the difference in my life, and now I feel like I really know him. Well, that story at least has a happy ending, but boy, can't you really identify with the first part of the story and these disciples, how it just seemed like it wasn't the same anymore, just as like when the woman came home and her daughter wasn't there, and it just seemed like it wasn't the same anymore. How these men must have felt that yearning in their hearts. It just wasn't the same anymore. Jesus was gone. And you know, right at that moment of weakness, isn't it wonderful how God into it, how God knows exactly how we're feeling, how God knows exactly what we need. At this very moment, he sends these two angels. The Bible tells us, two men at the end of verse 10 stood by them in white apparel. You know, beloved, I, I find this very interesting because if you go to Acts or Luke chapter 24, of course, Luke is the writer of Acts, Luke is the writer of the gospel according to Luke, and it's interesting that... Uh, this detail he preserves, and now we can kind of put it together with what we're reading in Acts, but uh, the very same experience occurred with the women who came early to the tomb. Just a week ago in our thinking, it was Easter, and these women came early to the tomb, and when they saw the stone rolled away, verse number four says they were much perplexed. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to make of it. The tomb was empty, and they didn't understand, and right at that moment in which they were afraid and perplexed, we're told, Two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid, bowed down their faces to the earth and said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful how angels were involved in his resurrection and announcing that to these women? Angels were involved when he went back to heaven. Angels were involved both times in encouraging the people of God over the otherwise discouraging events you know, on the one hand, the crucifixion and Jesus being gone that way, and now Jesus being gone back to heaven. And these angels are there with this incredible promise of comfort in verse number 11. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And they deliver in that message one of the most comforting promises that we have concerning the second coming of Christ. This same Jesus, that the beloved Savior whom we have known, this same Jesus we will see again. I think they encourage these men, first of all, by reinforcing the promise, because, you know, if you think about this, this wasn't the first time these men had heard that Jesus was coming back. In fact, Jesus himself, on the on the eve of his uh, departure from them in the upper room discourse. We all cherish those words in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe it also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And now... The angels come to reinforce that promise which they had heard before. Again, beloved, don't you just marvel at how God seems to understand exactly what we need? How many times 
It just simply takes being reminded of a great truth, being reminded of a verse, being reminded of a promise that we've known for a long time. How many times have you and I gotten a card and found a verse in it and we've said to ourselves, oh my, I don't know why I didn't think of that. I've, I've even maybe memorized that verse. I've, I've thought of that verse so many times, but it's exactly what we need on that occasion. And God, knowing that, sends these angels to remind and comfort these men because they were reinforcing a promise that Jesus had already made to them. But I think you really get to the heart of this thing, this phrase, this same Jesus. They were encouraging them with that promise because they were making it personal. Do you think about how personal those words are? This same Jesus. Now again, I want you to think with me about these men. Who were they? Well, these were the 11 apostles. But I, I want to single out for just a moment five of them, because if we go back to John chapter 20, that, that, that scene that we have there around the Sea of Galilee where Peter says, I go fishing, and uh, Jesus appears to them. This is one of his post-resurrection appearances. But it says there, there were together Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, which of course would be James and John. And then it says, and two other of his disciples. So there were seven total, but only five whose names we really have. And I want you to think about how these men, they personally knew Jesus. I think first of all about Peter, how Jesus had from the beginning seen so much potential in him how when his brother came and introduced him to Jesus, how Jesus changed his name from Simon to Cephas or Peter, which means a stone or a rock. Thou shalt be called Cephas. And then later Jesus brought out the significance of this in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 when he said to him, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus had seen so much potential in Peter, and yet Peter had so recently, and it had to still be on his heart and mind, he'd so re recently disappointed Jesus by denying him. And Jesus comes in that scene in John chapter 20 and lovingly, lovingly restores him and gives him his commission all over again, follow me. Beloved, can you not identify with that? Can you not think about the same Jesus who has come to us in our backslidings, who has come to us in our sins and so lovingly restored us? This is the same Jesus that we will see. I think about Thomas. Thomas, who's so often called the doubter. And to be sure, there in that scene in John chapter 20, he does make the comment to the other disciples when they said they had seen the Lord, that except he would see in his hand the print of the nails. And just a week later, Jesus appears to them again in that same upper room where he passed through the doors, and he called to Thomas specifically to reassure him in his doubt, to show him his hands, and to say, reach hither thy finger, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas, who, whom Jesus so lovingly reassured and helped in his time of doubt. Can you not identify with those many times this Jesus has done that for us and reassured, reassured us in our doubts? And I think of Nathaniel, that scene that we have in John chapter 1, the same scene in which we're told about Peter. And they come to him and they say, we've, we've, we've found whom, him of whom the, the prophets testify 
Jesus of Nazareth. And he doubts this. And he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And they say, come and see. And sure enough, he sees Jesus. And when Jesus sees him, he says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And it's like Nathaniel is speechless. He doesn't know how on earth Jesus can know so much about him. And he says, how do you know me? And Jesus said, oh, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And immediately he recognizes that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He knows his heart. He knows everything there is to know about him. But wonderful the fact that the same Jesus, despite the fact that he knew everything there was to know about him, nevertheless called him to his service and called him to be one of his apostles. Can you not identify with that? This same Jesus who knows everything about us and yet still calls us and uses us in his service. We come next to James and think about James for a moment. This same Jesus. You remember, James was one of the inner circle. James was one of the sons of thunder, as we're told in Mark chapter 3 and verse 16. Boanerges was the name, sons of thunder, fiery temperament. And you remember that story that we're told in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, around verse 54, we're told about how James and John were ready to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans because they made as if they weren't going to receive Jesus. And he took umbrage at that. He took offense at that. And Jesus said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of because the Son of Man has come to save men's lives, not to destroy them. And that same man with that same fiery temperament, Jesus went on to use and gave the privilege of being the first one of the apostolic company that was martyred for him, as we're told in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. And can you not identify with that, this same Jesus, this same Jesus that has looked past our moments of anger, our moments of frustration, our moments of outburst? And then we think of John. What do we know about John? He was the beloved disciple, the one that we see in John chapter 13, reclining on the breast of Jesus, that intimacy that got him the name, whom the one whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. But the angel told them, this same Jesus. Can you imagine, beloved, for them, how they must have felt about this? The person that they were forlorn about not seeing any longer, but they would see him again, and he would be the very same one whom they had known as they walked the pathways of earth with him and became acquainted with him and came to know him. But you know, this promise is not just for the disciples that knew him personally while he was on the earth, but for you and me as well, this same Jesus. Because even though you and I have never had the privilege of knowing Jesus physically like these early disciples did, yet we have had the privilege to know him. We have come to know him when we have gotten saved. And then we, as we have walked with him, we have gotten to know him even more. Thinking of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we can identify with all five of these men. We can identify that we have come to know him in the same way like Peter who so lovingly restored him after his dis, the fact that he disappointed his Savior. Thomas, who was reassured and used despite the fact that he had doubted and wondered. Nathaniel, whom Jesus called in spite of the fact that he knew everything that there was to know about him. 
James for his fiery temperament and his outbursts that Jesus looked past. John, who had those moments that every one of us really tends to covet, those intimate, close moments. We have been in all of those pictures in our lives, and we have come to know the Savior in all of those contexts. And when we see him, beloved, we will not be disappointed. There will be absolutely no disappointment because it will be this same Jesus. You know, I am really drawn, I find myself really drawn to how Francis uh, Haver, uh, Ridley Havergal um, made a, an attempt to, to uh, bring this very truth to bear on little children. You know, she was a well-known hymn writer, of course, and, and uh, some of the, the songs that we know that, 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 that she wrote that we love so much, um, we think about those songs, but more than the songs that she wrote that we, we think of so much, we probably don't realize that there were a number of things that she wrote. And one of the things that she wrote was a little book called Little Pillows. Just a small book, but it consisted of 31 devotionals, one for every day of the month, and they were written for little children. And the reason that they were called Little Pillows was because she would read them to a little child. Think about yourself in this position, being in bed maybe, and your mom or dad coming as a little child to read you a Bible story or tell you a Bible story. And she called them Little Pillows because not only could the little children put their heads and have a good night's rest on the real pillow. But these gems, these nuggets of scripture, well, they served as little pillows too upon which to rest their heads and to trust their lives as they went to bed in the evening. Well, it's so very interesting that the 15th one, chapter 15 in the little, in the little book, Little Pillows, is entitled This Same Jesus. Now, as you hear what she had to say in an effort to bring the reality of this truth before a little child, see if you can use your imagination for a moment. See if you can envision yourself pillowing your head, mom or dad there to tell you a Bible story. You get drowsier and drowsier as you listen to it, but the truth is so comforting. Mom and dad, they're there. The words are there. And here's how she brought that text to bear in that little devotional. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, the very same to you tonight that he was to the disciples who stood gazing up into heaven. When having lifted up his hands and blessed them, he went up to the opening gates of glory. The very same to you tonight that he was to the little children when he took them up in his arms and blessed them, not a bit different. Just as kind, just as loving, just as ready to take you up too and keep you always safe in the arms of Jesus. The very same to you tonight that he was when he said so lovingly, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Do you not feel that you would have loved him ever so much if you had heard him say that and that you would have gone to him at once because he was so good and kind? Well, he is this same Jesus now. When you lie down, see how many sweet and gracious words and deeds of his you can recollect. And say to yourself with everyone, he is the same now and the same for me. 
you are not always the same to him. When he comes and knocks at the door of your heart, you are sometimes ready to open, and sometimes you give him a cold, short, careless answer, and sometimes no answer at all. But he is always the same to you, always ready to receive you with tender love and pardon when you come to him. Perhaps you do not feel so happy now as you did one day when you felt that he was very near and gracious to you and full of forgiving love to you. What has changed? Only your feelings, not the Lord Jesus. He is always this same Jesus, and you may rest on this tonight and forever. And then she closed the devotional with this little poem. For this word, O Lord, we bless thee. For our Savior's changeless name, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus Christ is still the same. Yes, beloved, he is the beloved Savior. And when he returns, it is so gratifying and it is so comforting to know that it will be the same Jesus. The same Jesus whom we have read about on the pages of God's word. The same Jesus who, whom we have experienced in our daily walk. The same Jesus whom we have so grown to love and look forward to his coming. This same Jesus. But I mentioned to you that there is a second occurrence of this phrase in the book of Acts. And we find that now in chapter 2, verse 36. And you'll notice now that we have a very dramatically different audience. This, of course, is from Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And so he's preaching to the Jews who have rejected Jesus. And he says this to them in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You'll notice our version says that same Jesus instead of this same Jesus, but it's precisely the same expression in the original. God hath made this same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, of course, this is a different picture. This is a picture of the coming king. This is a picture of what the second coming means to people who have rejected Jesus. And for now, of course, he is in heaven. He sits waiting until, do you notice this if you look in your Bible at verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith to himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Until I make thy foes thy footstool, and then Jesus will come. And that's when it says, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye have crucified, whom you rejected, both Lord and Christ. You see, beloved, when he comes the second time, there won't be any doubt about it. It will be so obvious that he is the, the, the glorified and exalted Christ, and he is the Lord from heaven. I can't help but think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Wherefore, it says, in view of the fact that Jesus came to be our Savior, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Then it goes on to say, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Yes, beloved, this same Jesus. But this audience finds itself in a different boat. They aren't the beloved. They aren't the disciples for whom he is the beloved Savior. They are those who have rejected him. They are those who have put him on a cross. And if someone listening to this message today, if you find yourself in that audience and if you find yourself in that boat, then we can only do exactly what Peter exhorted his audiences to do when he prayed, he preached those sermons. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Then said Peter unto them, Repent. And if you go over to chapter 3 when he preached his sermon, uh, the second sermon that we find him having preached, he says the very same thing. He says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Repent, because if you do, he can become the beloved Savior to you. He will wash your sins away. You can know him and you can know that he's given you a home in heaven and the forgiveness of sins. Probably the name Mabel Camp doesn't mean much to any of us, but I suspect that we know the song, He Is Coming Again. Mabel Camp was the one who happened to write that song. She had been associated with uh, D.L. Moody's Bible Union classes, and uh, she wrote hymns and hymn tunes for the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. And she wrote that song, and boy, does the chorus, the refrain of that song, so abundantly capture the point that I'm making now. He is coming again. He is coming again. The very same Jesus rejected of men. He is coming again. He is coming again with power and great glory. He is coming again. And please, beloved, let me reach out to you. If someone is listening to this message today who does not know Jesus as personal Savior, you can know him as your Savior. For you, he can be the beloved Savior. Don't face him as the judge, but face him as the one whom you've bowed the knee to here in this life and trusted as your personal Savior from sin. There is hope, of course, in that case, because Christ promises whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. But think with me back again, beloved, to Christians, for whom when Jesus comes, it will be this same Jesus the one that we have so longed to see. You think about Peter's words, whom having not seen ye love, and we have so longed for his appearing, to see him just as he is. That song, What a Glad Day. Sometimes we know it by its title, Glad Day, and other song times we know it by its title, Is It the Crowning Day? And we sang this earlier in our service. Boy, does the refrain of that one also hit the nail on the head? Glad day, glad day, is it the crowning day? I'll live for today, nor anxious be. Jesus, my Lord, I soon shall see. Glad day, glad day, is it the crowning day? I want to reach out to you today, beloved. Easter may be past, but you know, we may have missed that in that we did not live on the earth like those men did on the first Easter. But for all we know, we may be in that living generation when Jesus returns. We will not miss out on that event, whether we walk the veil or whether we are here when he comes. We will be a part of Christianity's second most exciting event when our eyes shall see him 
this same Jesus. In that day, there will be no disappointment, but it will be for those of us who have known him, loved with him, walked with him, it will be such a glad day. May the Lord bless you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we have such great promises in the Bible, and our hearts identify with these men so pumped up as perhaps we were last Sunday, thinking about the resurrection and the joy of knowing that Christ is indeed risen from the dead. Help us now to be thinking about the fact that he's alive. He lives within our hearts. We can walk with him every day, but beyond that, to think of the fact that he's coming again, and we will see this same Jesus. May our hearts be full rather than forlorn. May they be happy rather than sad. And may we spend this new and coming week in the service of our Savior. For we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you and God bless you.